Well, welcome to this episode of the HSF Fireside Podcasts. Uh, this is coming to you from a time in the year when it's appropriate that I uh, put on my um, scarf to uh, show you that we're recording this in the week leading up to the AFL Grand Final, which is between my team Geelong and uh, Sydney Swan. So wherever in Australia that you might be observing uh, this podcast, uh, we hope that the best team wins. And of course, we hope that that will be Geelong. My name's Peter Holloway. I'm a partner in the disputes group uh, in the Melbourne office of HSF. Uh, I've been a, a partner in the firm for more years than I probably care to admit. So just take it that it's a long time. Uh, and uh, my practice area has been, was a broad based practice really, but in recent years, I've done quite a bit of work in, in class actions, both securities class actions and also other types of, of class actions, product liability and the like. And I've also um, uh, been involved in lots of uh, insurance disputes over the years. And what we often tend to find is that there's an intersection uh, between uh, the class action litigation uh, and the insurance. So I'm joined uh, today by Priscilla Bourne, uh, who is a senior associate in our uh, Brisbane group. Uh, Priscilla also gets involved in lots of, of class actions. Uh, and I'm also joined by Anne Hoffman, who is a senior associate uh, in our disputes group based in, in Sydney. So you've got all of the Eastern Seaboard of Australia covered, uh, Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney, not necessarily in that order. Uh, and uh, I should have said that Anne also looks at insurance issues a, a lot. So that's a lot of her um, day to day. Uh, so in this episode of the Fireside Chats, uh, we want to focus on the insurance elements of class actions. Uh, and with a particular emphasis upon how it might be that you can look to your insurance cover uh, to fund uh, the legal costs of defending class actions. Uh, I think it will come as news to no one that oftentimes um, a significant uh, financial impost is just um, the costs of defending these claims, which tend to go on for several years, um, sometimes several years as a minimum, uh, and usually they are fairly intensely fought, uh, which means that the legal costs that are incurred um, uh, by the parties, but particularly for this session um, by the company. Um, so uh, that's going to be the topic for today. Um, uh, in terms of DNO insurance, uh, in, in many senses, it's, it's a little bit anachronistic to talk about. Um, securities class actions uh, and DNO insurance. Going way back, uh, the purpose of DNO insurance was to provide protection only for the officers, for the directors and officers of the company, or for the company in the event that it, it, it indemnified and, and was entitled to reimbursement cover. Uh, but at some point uh, along the journey, um, uh, uh, what's called securities claims cover was added, uh, often called side C. Uh, originally, that was just an add-on uh, as a way of uh, enticing people to buy that particular type of policy. But over time, um, securities or entity cover uh, became uh, more of the norm. It's not always the case these days um, that policies contain side C cover, but it's not uncommonly the case that they do. So uh, in this um, session, th there are five points that we want to talk about. 
Um, first is, uh, and, and we're particularly focused upon shareholder claims, securities claims. Um, the first is, uh, is that sort of a claim covered by your policy in the first place? Uh, there's no point um, going to the trouble of pulling the policy out of the, uh, the drawer, dusting it off and, and looking for the cover that it might pay for defence costs if it doesn't cover securities claims uh, at all. So that's the first point, is the claim covered? The second point is, is the, has the claim been notified to the insurance? Uh, that's a session in itself that we won't talk about much uh, during this session, uh, but obviously you have to notify the insurer of a claim if it is a claim as defined. Sometimes you might be entitled to notify just of circumstances that might, might give rise to a claim and you might want to do that. But as I said, that's a, an, another whole session uh, in itself. The third point is, do you know uh, what your policy provides in, in terms of um, cover for costs? Um, uh, it, it's an important definition. Usually it's one of the driving definitions uh, in, in the policy uh, in terms of, of cover. Uh, there's a definition of, of defence costs. And have you read it? Do you know what you need to do? Uh, but in particular, um, have you thought about um, telling the uh, insurer that you're going to be incurring defence costs? Because there's usually a condition that says that the insurer is not liable unless it has consented to the incurring of defence costs. Fourth point is, have you considered what your position will be uh, if the insurer is only prepared to pay costs at a rate which is lower uh, than the, the rate of the firm that you want to engage? Uh, the point here is that the way that these policies are typically structured uh, is that the policy holder, the company, has the obligation to defend the claim uh, and um, the insurer has the right to what's called associate. Um, uh, so what that often means is that the uh, policy holder might have an existing relationship with a law firm that it wants to engage that law firm will have uh, a rate of, of costs that will be at a certain level. Uh, and uh, it might be that when you go to the insurer and, and ask for consent to engage that firm, there might have to be a discussion uh, about the rate or the rates that the insurer um, is prepared to, to pay. And, and the fifth point, and we'll develop some of these as we, as we go, um, the, the fifth point, which is not an uncommon scenario these days, uh, is that there will be two firms involved, one providing um, defence of the claim and another providing coverage advice to the insurer. Now, what will often be required is that the, the two firms will need to talk to each other. Uh, information will need to be passed from one to the other, and there might be certain protocols that need to be put in place to allow that to happen. Um, but relevantly for this purpose, uh, there'll be costs involved in all of that and, and who pays those costs. Are they costs that the insurer is prepared to treat as defence costs or not? Uh, or are they costs that the, um, the, the, the policy holder might have to pick up because they're not regarded as, as defence costs? So that's all of a, a bit of a, a, a long-winded uh, explanation. Um, but my first question, I can throw um, the way of, of Priscilla um, Priscilla, can you explain to us a little bit about the circumstances in which a policyholder might think about getting insurance cover for its legal costs? Oh, thanks, Peter, for that uh, good intro and the surprise little scarf appearance there. Um, so, yeah, to start off, I guess there's a range of circumstances 
from which a class action might arise. And although our discussion today is, is largely focused on securities class actions, as Peter has mentioned, there are a range of other uh, circumstances in which class actions can arise, and this can really affect um, the costs that are incurred and the insurance uh, coverage that is required. And so, uh, you know, we'd all be familiar with securities class actions, which are typically commenced by shareholders, often referred to as shareholder class actions. All class actions could uh, be commenced in respect of product defects, often referred to as uh, product liability class actions. Um, but we're also increasingly seeing a range of broader risks and circumstances that can give rise to class actions risk. Um, ESG being a, a prime example of that. And we speak to a number of those specific uh, risks and circumstances in a number of our other class actions podcasts. Um, but particularly in the securities class action space, what we typically see is that before class action proceedings have even been commenced, there's typically a period of investiga investigation, in some cases quite a long period of investigation, that proceeds um, or gives rise to class action risk. Uh, this can be a regulatory investigation or in some circumstances internal investigations by our clients um, into particular issues that have arisen. And so, you know, our clients are really in, in the situation where before a class action proceeding has even commenced, they're starting to incur, in some cases, very substantial legal costs um, from very early on. Um, and given this, as we, you know, are focusing on today, one of the key issues they need to grapple with right from that, um, that point at which the class action risk is potentially starting to, to crystallise is the question of insurance and whether or not they are taking steps right from the get-go um, to ensure that they have the appropriate coverage and that that coverage will kick in as needed. So um, I know we'll talk a bit more about the specifics of that, but typical policies that um, we'll need to be starting to think about right from that very beginning point where the class action risk is starting to crystallise is um, what policies <laughs> uh, might be needed. And, and typically we see that depending on the circumstances, uh, that will often be DNO insurance, side C cover um, and liability insurance in the class action space. Great, thanks, Priscilla. Um, a question for you, Anne, uh, if a company does have uh, cover, so DNO policy, uh, how, can the cover, how can that cover help uh, with funding the legal costs? So both uh, DNO policies have um, coverage for what's called defence costs. So um, you're not just covered under the DNO for any ultimate um, damages that you might have to pay um, if you're unsuccessful in the shareholder class action, but they will along the way reimburse defence costs and a lot of policies have even the advanced payment of defence costs, so you can access some money from the insurer up front. But typically, um, and you've mentioned some of these before, typically there are some um, uh, conditions attached to that, some conditions that you have to meet in order to um, be covered under the policy. And the first one is um, pretty straightforward. The, the underlying claim of the class action generally has to be um, a claim that is covered by the policy. So if it's not a shareholder class action that is covered by your side C, then uh, you won't be able to access um, any money to be paid out under the defence costs provisions. So um, 
while the insuring clause um, is perhaps often not difficult to be made out, but then often some exclusions may be raised by the insurers as to why the underlying claim is not covered. And then you also might not be able to recover the defence costs. Or what might happen is that um, you will get some advance payment, but the insurer says, if we're right and the policy doesn't cover you, you're going to have to pay us back, which obviously is also not great. Um, and then you mentioned also that um, a condition to the policy covering the underlying claims and notification. So you have to make sure that you've notified in time um, of whatever the risk is that, that arose. Secondly, um, the policy, policies usually require the um, company slash policyholder to seek the consent of the insurer for the law firm and the, def and the defense costs that they're incurring. Um, and I know we'll talk about that in a bit more detail in a moment. Um, and thirdly, um, typically the defence costs that may be recovered are only the reasonable defence costs. So depending on how much um, you rack up um, or how um, difficult the insurer wants to make it for you, um, insurers tend to look quite closely at the um, invoices that you present to them. They tend to look quite closely at the narratives um, they tend to look quite closely at the number of lawyers that are involved in a particular task, um, the amount of time it has taken, the, the amount of lawyers that are generally involved um, on uh, dealing with a particular work stream. So um, they are looking at um, whether the claim is run or the defence is run efficiently. Um, so that is something else to bear in mind um, when you try to access cover for defence costs. So I mentioned the um, the consent that's required. So I might throw that question right back at you, Peter. Um, what have you seen and what are the difficulties around seeking consent on the law firms um, that are being used to defend the class action? Yeah, look, sometimes uh, it, it can depend uh, upon the the insurer in, involved, but uh, obviously there are, there are quite a few firms these days uh, who are very proficient uh, in defending these sorts of, of claims. Um, uh, what I've observed over the years is that oftentimes insurers will have what they describe as panel firms or firms with whom they might have an arrangement. Uh, and, and that might mean that, that they have particular rates that they have already uh, pre-negotiated, call it that. Um, and if you want to engage, or if the company wants to engage a firm other than, than those firms, uh, there might have to be a, a discussion uh, with the insurer. Uh, as I said at the start, the way that these policies are typically structured uh, is that the insured has the right to, or has the obligation actually, to defend the claim and the insurer has the right to associate. And uh, also oftentimes, as I said, um, the policyholder might have an existing relationship with a law firm and so they might have a preference towards that firm. Um, but what is important, uh, regardless of, of which firm the, the policyholder company wishes to engage, what's important uh, is that there be a, a line of communication um, with the insurer it, where problems often arise is that um, in the heat of the moment, um, people move on and so they engage law firms and uh, a level of work might be done uh, and someone says, oh, um, we haven't yet um, engaged with the insurer on this question and they then engage with the insurer uh, and uh, because the, the 
horse is already bolted to a degree, you, you have to back up and, and have the conversation that you ought to have had earlier. So I think the main lesson to take out of all of that uh, is that firstly, you should know what your policy says, but I think the, the assumption that you can fairly readily make is that there will be a requirement that you obtain the consent of the insurer to the in, incurring of um, defence costs. Uh, and that means that there has to be a, a communication uh, at that at that point in time. As with most things, um, uh, and most things with res with respect to the relationship between the policyholder and the insurer, uh, it's just a matter of maintaining a good um, level of dialogue. Uh, and um, I'm sure that you know most insurers, in my experience, wish there to be a good level of dialogue, and most companies wish there to be a good level of dialogue. So everyone's coming at this from a from a, a, a common objective. So it's just a matter of making sure that no one forgets to engage in the in the communication and to have the dialogue. That that's basically my my experience, and eventually you you'll work this out, and and everyone will go forward, and bearing in mind that the common objective held both by the company and the insurer is, if possible, to successfully resist the claim. So thanks, Anne, for, for those comments. Um, one last question that I might throw to, to both of you together. Um, sometimes we encounter situations where the cover provided by a policy responds only in part to a claim. Um, so you have a, a, a part of a claims covered and part of it is not covered. Uh, what happens then? Uh, what does the policyholder, uh, the the company, uh, need to be concerned about in those circumstances? Perhaps we'll start with you, Anne. Sure, thanks. Um, as Priscilla mentioned at the outset, we often find that um, those shareholder class actions have um, uh, a long period of investigation that leads up to it, um, and so. Um, in that context, you might find that some of the investigation or even a regulator investigation before the class action, and you might find that some of those um, investigations are actually covered under, say, a side B of the same policy because some of the directors get asked to um, uh, assist with the investigation. Um, and so the important thing there to bear in mind is that that might be the um, director's costs but it's not the entities, not the company's costs. Whereas with the shareholder class action, then it's the company's costs in defending the shareholder class action. So you would have to set up processes and ways in which you record time that the law firm spends that can quite clearly show to which part, to which work stream does the work actually relate. So you might have phase codes, you might have different matter numbers, you might um, have quite specific narratives. Um, I've been involved in a claim where um, you just record a phone call with general counsel and you have no idea, is that a phone call about the class action? Is that a phone call about a Section 19 um, interview? You have no idea what it relates to. So it's really important there to be quite specific about setting up the right processes quite early on so that you can actually substantiate your claim later on. But um, if you can't, then sometimes what uh, insurers accept is that you apply a percentage. So you might have a global figure and you might say a particular amount was reasonably spent on 
this investigation or something that's unrelated to the to the class action that's strictly speaking um, covered by the policy. Um, and you can try to negotiate that, but you're obviously much better off if you can substantiate the, the um, specific um, cost claims that you have. Priscilla? Yeah, no, I completely agree, Anne. Um, I think it's really important, uh, particularly in those early stages of investigations before a class action may have even been commenced, that careful thought is given to these things, um, even before they arise as um, you know legitimate issues um, that our clients need to grapple with. Um, because it's all in the setup, right? You know, it's it's those practical administrative steps that are taken early on uh, to clearly differentiate between work that may, might be covered versus work, work which might be covered under a different policy or not at all. Um, and so that that is um, often just simple communication with the client, with the insurers, um, so that everybody's on the same page and that is reflected really clearly um, and ultimately that's what's going to um, lead to the good outcomes in terms of not having um, the work all sort of ambiguous um, where it is, where it's not covered. Um, so I think, as you say, Anne, those setting up those processes really early on to ensure that um, fees are split um, so that they're recoverable um, in the long run is, is what we're aiming for. Great. Well, thank you, Priscilla and Anne. I, I think uh, that's that's probably enough um, for our uh, listeners and our uh, watchers uh, for, for this session. As I said at the start, we can and probably should do other sessions on things like notifications and there are a whole um, uh, gamut of issues that can come up in the insurance sphere that we can we can talk about. And uh, by the time that, that you watch this video, you will you will know. But as we sit here, we don't know who the winner will be on Saturday. But all I can say at the end of this session is go Cats. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Anne. <laughs> Thank you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.